Thanks, Dave. Um, as he said, I'm Georgia, and I'm a staff member and deacon here at Citizens. And yeah, I feel really honored to be preaching this morning. Um, last week, we began a new sermon series exploring the O antiphons, um, which were sonnets originally written in Latin in the 7th or 8th centuries. And um, they are based on names for Jesus in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah. And so last week, Dave preached on O wisdom, that Jesus isn't um, just offering us wisdom, but that he is wisdom himself. And so this week, we're continuing our journey, exploring O Adonai. As we read the scripture this week, you may feel a bit of deja vu if you were paying attention last week and noticed that the passage today is basically the same, just a few verses shorter. Here's a golf clap for you. Good job. Um, As Dave said last week, many of the O antiphons come from the same few passages in Isaiah. And so part of our Christian faith is hearing the same verses and passages and Bible stories over and over. And so I just invite you to listen with um, fresh ears and fresh hearts um, that the Spirit still has something to say, um, maybe something new or familiar this morning. So um, I invite Mel to read our scripture for us. Right, so our scripture today, again, is uh, Isaiah 1.5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide uh, disputes by what he he his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth and the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his lives. Thanks, Mom. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful that you are with us here this morning. We are grateful that you have invited each of us to take a seat uh, in this room. Um, Wherever we're coming from, um, however our morning started or our night ended last night, you have welcomed us here um, with you and with each other. We ask that your spirit would um, give us what it is that you want us to hear. Um, I ask that the words that I share would be pleasing to you and would communicate um, your truth and your love. We, are thank you. we thank you that you are with us and that you loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you, for us, really. What is your good place? If you have seen the show, The Good Place, you know that in its fictitious world, every human is sorted into the bad place or the good place when they die, depending on how many points they've accumulated. It's fairly easy to be sent to the bad place, uh, considering all the things that obviously give you negative points, having a vanity license plate, microwaving fish, fish in an office kitchen, being part of any of the bachelor or bachelorette shows, and of course, 
being from Florida automatically sends you to the bad place. <laughs> Sorry, Dave and Maggie. <laughs> um, and then the bad place is full of torment. Not just lava monsters, acid snakes, twisting people until they break, bees with knees, turning humans inside out, but also advertising jingles playing over and over, egg salad from hospital vending machines, Mussolini speech karaoke, trainings about how to sexually harass others, the constant smell of a new Transformers axe spray, and so much more. But... The good place is full of anything you could ever want or imagine. So if you could have a place filled with everything you selfishly wanted, the perfect environment catered around you and all of your wildest dreams and desires, what would it look like? Go crazy. There's no wrong answer. Throw out some ideas. Lots of Oreos. Chocolate. Taco truck. A taco truck, yes. Cats. 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 <laughs> What'd you say? What? A quiet room, always available. A quiet room. <laughs> Warm weather. Warm weather. No cats. No cats. <laughs> Sunsets, always. Sunsets. Hmm. Well, those are great answers, and I feel like I often say this. You might hear me say it. Uh, Love that for you. (laughs) But I noticed a pretty significant trend. Um, There wasn't any mention of leaders. No governing structure, nothing um, telling us what to do or who to be. Um, No person who was in charge of anybody. Um, And this is pretty telling. It pretty strongly suggests that we've been socialized towards towards certain beliefs or just inherently as people, we have certain beliefs or maybe even both. Beliefs that only I know what is best for myself and what my ideal world looks like. Beliefs that leaders and power structures are definitely not part of the ideal and not necessary, not relevant, and not good. Today, we're exploring O Adonai, a title for Jesus that means Lord. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe the word Lord feels really familiar to you. At Citizens, we often sing songs with lyrics like, Come, Lord Jesus, come, and Lord, I need you. Great are you, Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so the word Lord passes easily off of our lips. But today I want to invite us to sit with the discomfort of this word. Lord can feel confusing, foreign, even a little frustrating. For much of human history, the concept of Lord has held a dark connotation. It's been the title of folks who have held great power and have often used that power to um, corrupt or exploit others. In many ways, the concept of Lordship feels outdated and really is outdated. In 2022, in the United States, land doesn't belong to lords, people aren't dependent on lords for their well-being, and lords aren't feuding with each other. In the early New Testament, lord is used more than 700 times. It's clearly an important word for Jesus. 
The Greek word used for Lord is Kyrios, a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. But Kyrios has many meanings, not just Lord, also master and ruler. If we didn't already struggle with the word Lord, these other meanings of Kyrios aren't much more palatable. A word like master is stained with the blood of slavery and racism. A word like ruler is made complicated by many millennia of totalitarian dictators and tyrannical kings. It's reasonable and valid, maybe even right, for these words to give us pause. Individually and collectively, We've had so many experiences of people who have stewarded their power poorly. Immediately, greedy politicians, corrupt world leaders, even bad bosses can come to our minds. And this leads us to a suspicion of power and evokes a variety of postures from us. We fall towards nihilism. We can't trust that the world could operate according to moral or religious principles, and so we fall into despair believing that all is meaningless. Or we embrace anarchy with the slogan, since there isn't a perfect leader, no one can or should be in charge. Or maybe we turn to a self-absorbed withdrawal, resigning ourselves to the motto, no one in power is trustworthy, so I can only trust myself. All of these responses are understandable because power is complicated. But maybe our aversion to Kyrios, to Lord, isn't just about the negative experiences we've had, the country we live in, or what century it is. What if it's also about the kinds of beings humans are? What if it has a lot to do with our understanding of power? Sometimes, in certain ways, we do want people to just tell us who we are or what to do. We want people to just give us the right answers, and we want products that solve all of our problems. We take quizzes to see what personality types we are, what colors we should and shouldn't wear, what pizza toppings we are, what Disney princes we are, what Thanksgiving side we are. We all know how tempting these quizzes are. (laughs) Um, And I see a counselor once a week. Um, She's really great. I also see a spiritual director um, once a month. She is really great as well. Um, I also have a vocational coach that I see every other month. Um, And I'm thinking of seeing a health coach as well. Um, Is that too many gurus? No, I don't think you can ever have too many gurus. Um, Some of my desires for all of these people in my life are because I do believe that they help me pursue help, they help me pursue meaning, they help me pursue God. But some of my motivation is also about cushioning myself from having to make every decision about my life on my own. I want reassurance in the midst of my feelings of flailing. Isn't this true of a lot of us? We want gurus and guides We want guidance, we want help, we want answers. We want life coaches and instructors. But all of this, we want on our own terms. This points to several things about us as humans. On the one hand, 
If we let postures of power suspicion guide us, we're led to create a world based on distrust, despair, hopelessness, and exclusion. On the other hand, wanting answers and guidance on our own terms shows our fickleness and our finiteness. We hate being judged, yet love to judge others. We want to have total autonomy over our own lives, but experience decision fatigue. We want everything that serves our best interest, but get indignant when that butts up against someone else's best interest. We want power and we fear power. These are the feelings of Advent, lament and longing. In lament, we grieve the brokenness of the selves and the world that we occupy, the fickleness and finiteness of being human, the warped and mangled wielding of power that's so prevalent across societies and throughout human history, and in longing, we ache for some solution, some hope, some answer. In a song that we sometimes sing on Sundays, we participate in a call and response. Do you feel the world is broken, we say? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? So where do we go from here? In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is communicating to God's chosen people, Israel. They are faced with a very real and terrifying possibility of being overtaken by a powerful nation named Assyria. And in the midst of this scary reality, they too are fickle and conflicted. They're craving worldly security. They're afraid that their safety, their sense of belonging, their physical home, and all ways of locating themselves will be taken away by this new power. So what charge does Isaiah give them? To turn towards nihilism or anarchy or withdrawal? Should they just give up and become complicit in the ways of the world and make a deal with Assyria? Isaiah doesn't offer them any of these options. Instead, he invites them to imagine with beautiful imagery and language, a different kind of ruler, a different framework for power, and a different kind of kingdom. Let's read verses 1 through 5 again from chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes hear or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What a rich passage. One of the fascinating things about it 
to me is that it doesn't just tell the wonderful things about who Jesus is. It does do that, but it also reveals realities about us, about humanity. It acknowledges our needs and our longings, our fears, and our limits. In our confusion amidst so many gurus and a million versions of truth, this Lord is wise and understanding. He is wisdom himself. In our decision fatigue, bounded capacity, and cusps of burnout, this Lord gives counsel and direction and leads with strength. In our paradox of limited knowledge, yet believing we know best, this Lord is all-knowing, yet humble, submitting to his Father. Who else is worthy enough to govern the whole universe? Who else is righteous enough to make equitable decisions for the marginalized? Who else is full of truth? Who else is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness? In his commentary exploring the prophets of the Bible, Barry G. Webb expresses, the fundamental characteristic of his rule will be righteousness, which in practical terms will mean justice for the poor and meek, something which the current kings had conspicuously failed to bring about. And he will be in a position to execute perfect justice because he will be possessed of perfect knowledge. The people of Israel had good reason to distrust power structures and powerful people. Again and again, they had been oppressed by other nations. And even when they had their own kings and rulers, these leaders often didn't steward their power well. Yet this king that Isaiah describes, this Adonai, is different. Somehow, he is trustworthy, he is good, and he is perfect. What if you could fully trust your leaders? What if it were true that every SF supervisor, every tech CEO, every governor, every pastor, every school principal, every Supreme Court justice, every landlord, every senator, always did what was good, what was right, and what was perfect? Would this change our resistance to power? our suspicion of those in power. This idea really does feel hard to fathom. It's difficult to visualize this kind of reality. Thankfully, Isaiah helps us imagine that it somehow is possible for power to be stewarded well, possible to have a leader who is good, trustworthy, and perfect. But this is really only found in Adonai. Isaiah invites us deeper into imagination. Who really is this Adonai? In our day-to-day lives, what does it look like for him to be Lord? In chapter 33, verse 22, Isaiah tells us more about the kind of leader Jesus, Adonai, is. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Does anything about these three functions stand out to you? To transport you back to civics class, they're the three branches of U.S. government, judicial, legislative, and executive. In school, we learn about each of them, 
the legislative branch makes laws, the executive branch carries out laws, the judicial branch interprets laws. And we also learn about a concept called checks and balances, which Oxford Dictionary says are counterbalancing influences by which an organization or a system is regulated, typically the ensuring that political power is not concentrated in the hands of individuals or groups. In 1788, James Madison wrote in one of the Federalist Papers that the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, in the same hands, whether by one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elected, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Throughout the course of our country's history, people have gotten really angry and afraid when it feels like the balances and checks of the powers that be are out of whack. And so, as you may have already gathered, what's shocking about this verse in Isaiah 33 is that Jesus is, in fact, the accumulation of all these powers and that we are somehow invited to believe or at least contemplate that it's not tyranny, as James Madison would have us believe. But it is wild just how much Jesus is Lord over, not just as a governing power over humans. 1 Timothy 6.15 says that he is the blessed and only ruler, the Lord over all other lords and king over all other kings. Luke 6.5 says that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Matthew 28.18 says that he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Colossians 1.15-18 packs a major punch. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Wow. Is that too much power? Isaiah is inviting Israel and us to imagine that somehow there is a Lord that is so full of power, yet rules perfectly. Many times in the Old Testament, the steadfast love of the Lord is proclaimed. Later in Isaiah, in chapter 63, verse 7, Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. And the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So this saturated with power, Lord, is also full of compassion, full of abundance, full of goodness. What if we considered that Adonai is our loving judge? that Adonai is our loving lawgiver, that Adonai is our loving king, and he will lovingly save us. Somehow, 
Adonai's lordship comes both at great cost to us and is the best thing for us. His power threatens our pride, yet overwhelms us with love. As loving judge, Adonai does have the power to see our whole lives and discipline us, but for our good and for his glory. As loving lawgiver, Adonai is the exclusive author of the way to live rightly, but for our good and for his glory. As loving king, Adonai invites, even commands, us to submit to him and even redeems that submit worm that makes us squirm. But still, all for our glory, all for his glory and for our good. So we've heard about this Adonai, this Lord named Jesus, that maybe we do need him, that receiving him as Lord comes at great cost, that maybe he is good, though it may not always feel like it, in our limited meaning making. Apparently, who he is as the person of Adonai is enough for us. And yet, he gives us not just himself, but he extends his world to us. He gives us himself as king, and he invites us to live in his kingdom. And what a strange yet captivating kingdom it is. Do you remember verses 6 through 9 from chapter 11 that we read last week? Let's read them again. The the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 72, 1 through 4 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Isaiah 2, 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, Nations shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn no more. I want to live in this world, though it means that I won't be queen. I want to receive this king, this Lord, though though it means admitting that I don't actually have control over anything that I don't actually know what's best for myself. How about you? Maybe you're skeptical about needing Jesus as Lord. Maybe you're afraid that he's not actually good, that once again, someone in power will wield it in oppression. Maybe you're suspicious of anyone in power. 
Remember our inclinations towards withdrawal, anarchy, nihilism? And yet, Advent is about not isolating into withdrawal, not settling for anarchy, and not despairing into nihilism. In the first Advent longings in the time of Isaiah, the people of Israel could have wanted to isolate or settle or despair. They were desperate for hope. Hear Isaiah 59, 14 through 15. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. But then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is the wonder of Jesus's birth, of Christmas, that the Lord over all creation and all other rulers, the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, was moved to intercede on our behalf and came near to us. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What kind of Lord is born among animals and placed in their feeding trough. What kind of Lord has his first birth proclaimed to humble caretakers of sheep? What kind of Lord spends most of his adult life with those whom the rest of society shuns? What kind of Lord dies a brutal death but is then resurrected. Only Jesus. In his goodness and love, in his wisdom and righteousness, in his equitable decision-making and true speech, in his incarnation as a human being and his chosen poverty, in his meekness and humility, in his willingness to die on our behalf, Adonai, Jesus, is worthy of lordship, and he is worthy of our worship. For the month of October, 
our church explored and practiced a type of prayer that involved listening. We were invited to trust that God wants to speak to us and enables us to hear from him through his spirit. And so I'm going to read the first five verses from Isaiah 11 again. And this time I invite you to close your eyes. I invite you to trust that God gave you imagination and is using it to be with you. The power of this passage is that Isaiah was painting a picture of the Messiah for his listeners, for the people of Israel. And we can enter into that picture too and allow Jesus to change us. Jesus is helping us not just begrudgingly tolerate him as Lord or be just slightly interested in him as Lord, but Jesus is helping us to long for him as Lord, to desire him as Lord, and to worship him as Lord. Maybe you have a hard time picturing Jesus, and that's okay. As we read about him, notice what words stand out, where Jesus might be inviting you to linger. So if you'd like, you can close your eyes now, and I'll read from Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. With your eyes still closed, Take note right now of how your body feels, what emotions you're experiencing, of what it feels like the Lord is inviting us into. You can open your eyes now. Ultimately, the Jesus that Isaiah describes Adonai, is good news. For me, I can want to believe that it's good news, but it often feels abstract and maybe even theoretical. For those of us who want to try to receive Jesus as Lord, as good news, what could that look like? One way is through prayer. In September, our church learned about and practiced Acts prayer which stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so when we pray, we can adore Jesus as Lord. We can confess to Jesus as Lord. We can thank Jesus as Lord. And we can come to Jesus as Lord with all of our asks and longings. 
Another way that the good news of Jesus as Lord can feel more true and relevant is through our emotions. In our time in huddles as a part of citizens' communities, we move through a practice called gospel to the heart, listening to what emotions we're feeling and receiving them as messengers rather than inherently good or bad. Together, we pay attention to what needs and longings our emotions reveal, and we make space to listen and encourage each other towards Jesus. So the next time your huddle gathers, or even as you practice gospel to the heart on your own, as you just notice emotions that come up in your day-to-day life, I invite you to consider how Jesus, as Adonai, wants to meet your needs, especially remembering the aspects of his identity that Isaiah reveals in chapter 11. In anger, Adonai is our trustworthy advocate as we long to be heard. In hurt, Adonai is our healer, the one who sees us and offers his embrace. In loneliness, what if we let Adonai be our refuge in our longing for intimacy? In sadness, would we let Adonai bring us comfort as our loving counselor and shepherd? In fear, will we look to Adonai to protect us in his faithfulness and receive his all-knowing help and wise counsel? In shame, what if we believed Adonai to be our victor, reminding us of his steadfast love and his approval of us? In guilt, may we allow Adonai to be our partner, cleansing us with his righteousness. And in gladness, may we celebrate Adonai as our source of joy and praise him for the grace and faithfulness that are part of his lordship. Today, Adonai meets us amidst our suspicion of those in power and our frustrations with the concept of lordship. Adonai sits with us in the paradox of our decision fatigue and our desires for autonomy. In our longing for gurus and answers, but on our own terms, Adonai hears and sees us. In our power grasping and power fearing, he draws near to us. And ultimately, Adonai, Jesus, offers us himself today as the perfect and righteous Lord that we so often forget we need or are so desperately resistant to. Will you let Adonai reveal himself to you this week? Let's pray. O Adonai, and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai. Come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. Adonai, we are grateful for this sonnet that has inspired us to reflect more on who you are as Lord, a word that we often gloss over and sing past We confess that we have such a hard time with lordship. We admit that we 
are fickle and um, full of paradox in all of the ways that we want people to give us guidance, but we want it on our own terms in all of the ways that we want autonomy but have decision fatigue. We confess that in our pride, we don't want your lordship. But we are grateful that you have come to save us. That you are our king, that you are our lawgiver, that you are our judge. And that you are all of those things for your glory and yet also for our good. We are grateful that you are moving us, that you are forming us, not just to be curious about you as Lord, but to desire you as Lord. And so we ask this week that you would meet us in our emotions and remind us of your Lordship, that you would meet us in our wrestling and our difficulty with the concept of Lordship, and that you would give us more desire more curiosity, wherever we are in our journey, that you would give us more of you as Lord. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.